Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. I'd like to welcome you to the Institute of World Politics. I, I don't know um, I don't know all of you, so I don't know if you've been here before or not. I don't know. There's a lot I don't know, but um, I don't know if you're familiar with us, so I'm just going to tell you just a touch. Um, we're a graduate school, and we have uh, five master degree programs, and we have one doctoral program, and we have uh, 18 certificates of study, okay, so, you know, professional types of certifications. Um, we also have the opportunity for you to take a single course. So you can buy a single course um, and not have to enroll for a whole, uh, a whole year or a whole set of uh, curriculum. And if you're interested in learning how to do that, just talk to any of the staff after, after the event. Um, any questions on that? just want to get that out of the way. Um, so I'd like to tell you a little bit about uh, the author and speaker uh, for tonight. Um, his name is Dr. Matthew Daniels. He is a professor here as well as other places. He's also uh, got a Juris Doctorate. That's like a law degree, but uh, we forgive him that, right? Um, and he teaches human rights and law, so he teaches it uh, rather than, you know, in a courtroom. And he does that on three different continents, so he's not U.S.-centric. He thinks about things globally. Um, and he's the executive pr producer of the Human Rights Network, uh, which is an educational video network. Uh, which promotes universal rights uh, through digital media. And if you're interested in that, I'm sure he can tell you how to get to, get to that. Um, he is also, Dan, uh, Professor uh, Daniels is also the chair of the Human Rights and Digital Culture at the Institute of World Politics, that's here, and the founder of the Center for Law and Digital Culture at the Brunel School of Law in London. Um, he is also an adjunct professor at law at Hansung International Law School in Pahang, Korea. So he, get, he gets around. Um, he's the creator of a nonprofit organization called Good of All and UniversalRights.com. And all that information, you know, the dot coms and how you get to the videos, all that, um, we can make sure that you have. So. Um, please help me in welcoming Professor Matt Van. Thanks everybody for coming. Um, I appreciate you being here. So I'm going to ask a question I, I just for fun that I like to ask my students. Who thinks that overall the internet is a force for good? Raise your hand. Overall. Okay, that's majority. And who thinks overall it's a negative force? Anybody? A couple of cynics in the back. Okay. Uh, I'll give you my view on this. 
Um, I think that the internet and digital media are like all media, so they're morally neutral. So you can use them for great good and also great evil. Um, think about pharmaceuticals. You can cure people with a drug, you can alleviate pain, or you can turn them into a drug addict. Uh, think about nuclear power. You can uh, light a city or destroy a city with nuclear power. It's all up to the human agency involved. And um, digital media is no exception, okay? So digital media, with all of its immense power, has immense power for good and for evil. Um, and it's used for both by governments, by movements, you know, political parties, ideological movements, and individuals. Um, we're not trying to, uh, in a sense, whitewash the fact that the internet has a dark side. Um, and that dark side is going to increasingly be evident in our world because we're living in an era of rising authoritarianism. Um, two of the trends that are going to characterize the future of this world are uh, authoritarian movements and violent movements. Uh, and they will use digital media. Uh, governments will use digital media to oppress citizens, to uh, monitor and uh, surveil the population. Um, organized traffickers will use digital and social media to sell uh, contraband. Um, they'll use it to traffic human beings. Um, so against that backdrop, I started working on this book because I think that one of the bright spots on the horizon in our day is the fact that many ordinary people are using digital media for good. And the more we tell these stories, the more we encourage this phenomenon where ordinary people take these tools and use them to promote uh, <coughs> fundamental rights. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, ordinary people are the ones who have the reason to advocate for their own fundamental rights, more than a government bureaucrat, more than some uh, intergovernmental agency. Um, and so it stands to reason that as these tools get more numerous, as they get more powerful, as they become more available, um, ordinary people are going to find ways to use them to promote um, freedoms that are important to them. Um, we call this the democratization of human rights. It's a phenomenon that we've seen in other uh, fields, you know, whether it's retail or education or uh, commerce. Um, we're seeing a democratization of uh, areas that previously were off limits to individuals. And human rights is no exception, and that's a good thing, by the way, because a lot of the pre-digital institutions that we've looked to in the past to protect our human rights are either not very good at it, or in some cases are downright corrupt. Um, and there are lots of people whose um, motives and uh, uh, courage are sufficient that they are taking on some of the really uh, frightening challenges of our day in small groups, sometimes in large groups, and having a huge impact. And that's what this book is about. In fact, that's what the title means, in case you're wondering. Human Liberty 2.0 means people taking fundamental rights into their own hands through the tools of the digital age, and it's something really good that we ought to promote and celebrate. Um, in order to do that, I decided to create a book that would have stories, stories that people could get their mind around, that weren't abstract, that were real people, from every continent on the world, um, uh, some of them young, teenagers, not just adults, 
um, who have done this. Um, and we're going to talk about some of those stories today so that you can get a sense of what's going on around the world and also here at home with this phenomenon that we call Human Liberty 2.0. Um, so that's the name of the book. It's on Amazon if you want it. Um, I'm going to show a few videos that explain some of the themes of the book and some of the contents of the book. Um, this first video that we're going to watch is, um, of all things, it's a review of the new Spider-Man movie. Have anybody seen this movie, Into the Spider-Verse? Anybody familiar? Sort of? Kind of? It's kind of a younger kid's movie, so you're excused. Uh, so we, one of the things we do uh, as an organization is reviews of movies to use them as teaching tools online. Draws eyeballs. It's, it's not just uh, education. We call it edutainment. It's sort of a merger of uh, entertainment and education. It works. Um, and I thought, well, we might as well do a review of this movie that's sort of themed around this idea of Human Liberty 2.0. So if we could, let's watch this review of Into the Spider-Verse. You probably know who this guy is. Do you know who this is? Or this? Or this? My name is Peter Porker. The latest Spider-Man movie, Into the Spider-Verse, sees our favorite superhero undergoing a serious identity crisis. When do I know I'm Spider-Man? Who won't? Thanks to a machine that smashes dimensions together, Spider-Man meets his equivalents from multiple dimensions, including a Spider-Girl, a Spider-Robot, and yes, even a Spider-Pig. How many more Spider-People are there? This could literally not get any weirder. No matter which dimension you're in, it seems you can rely on Spider-Man to stand up for your right to life, liberty, and security. Back in the real world, it's a different story. With no superhero vigilantes, we are left to rely on the state to protect our rights. Yet all too often, governments actively infringe the rights of their own citizens. When you see people around you being taken off the streets and severely tortured because, you know, they, they like the picture on Facebook, you feel like you have a responsibility to do something about it. So, with no superheroes to protect our rights, should we just give up? Around the world, brave individuals are standing up for human rights every single day. From the Saudi women who won the right to drive, to the campaigners fighting dictatorships, ordinary people are proving that individuals can make a difference. We are now struggling for a new world based on peace, based on human rights. And perhaps that's the real message of Into the Spider-Verse. Its diverse cast shows that we all have the power to do good, whatever our background, race or gender. We are here to speak for these children and for all rights, for women's rights. We are here to take in action. Fortunately, thanks to the tools available to us in the digital age, you too can get involved in furthering the fight for human rights worldwide. Click below to find out more about how you can get involved in Human Liberty 2.0. So this trend we call Human Liberty 2.0 is one of the reasons I have hope for the future. Um, I don't think that the darkness of authoritarianism is going to prevail, but I don't necessarily think it's going to be easy with um, the rise of movements and governments in our era 
who are unapologetically committed to a totalitarian system that denies all human rights and oppresses individuals on a scale that was not possible in a pre-digital era. If you know anything about, for example, the Chinese system of surveillance and censorship, um, obviously you have nations like Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, and others. You also have movements, uh, non-governmental movements, that are committed to using this media to promote uh, ideologies of uh, uh, genocide and racism. Um, so uh, now we're going to look at some examples from the book. These are chapters in the book um, that uh, illustrate the themes of Human Liberty 2.0. Um, I'm going to show a video for uh, one of the international examples, and I'm going to show a video for one of the domestic examples, but I'll talk about some of the other chapters. These may be some stories that you're familiar with, some of them you may less be, be less familiar with. In general, I found that um, a lot of these stories don't get much media attention. Um, for whatever reason, um, the evening news really seems focused on uh, the worst of human nature, and often stories like this get overlooked. Some of these you've probably heard of, but many of them you may not have heard of. The first one that we're going to look at today um, uh, is a video on two chapters from the book. One chapter in the book deals with the um, Muslim women who organized the uh, protest against the Saudi driving ban uh, using YouTube. You guys familiar with that? Have you heard of that? Okay, so that was a big, uh, impressive example of what we call Human Liberty 2.0 in a very repressive society, Saudi Arabia. Uh, now, women are not free by any standard in Saudi Arabia today, but they did have a victory with this particular movement. It was led by a woman named Manal al-Sharif. Uh, we paired that with a video that is woven into this same one that you're going to watch on uh, the hijab protests in Iran. Has anybody heard about those? Yes, okay. So, um, uh, uh, Masia Alinajad was an organizer of something called My Stealthy Freedom, which was a Facebook page encouraging Iranian women to celebrate taking off the mandatory hijab. I mean, this may not seem necessarily like a big deal, but Clothing is a very fundamental act of personal expression, and so when the government uh, unreasonably forces you to dress in a certain way, it really deprives you of a whole range of freedom of speech and freedom of conscience rights, and it's a part of a larger system of oppression. Um, so let's watch this first video about how Muslim women are using the tools of the digital age to promote freedom. Right now, the basic human rights of millions of women across the Middle East are being severely restricted under laws which prevent them from doing basic daily tasks such as traveling or seeking medical care without the permission of a male guardian. Failure to comply with laws can and often does result in beatings, imprisonment, or execution. But there is still hope. People across the Middle East are fighting for a better future in which women are free to live and express themselves as they choose. Held as political prisoners in Saudi Arabia for years without charge, without access to an attorney, without having been tried. This effort has been bolstered in recent years due to the emergence of digital technology and social media which allow for the rapid spread of stories and ideas unimpeded by government interference. One such fighter is a woman named Manal Al-Sharif, 
who uploaded a video of herself driving in Saudi Arabia to YouTube in 2011. At the time, Saudi women were prevented from driving by man-made customs known as fatwas, and Sharif was quickly arrested. Sharif's courageous act of protest empowered other women to post similar videos, and in June of 2018, the women of Saudi Arabia were granted the right to drive. On the day this ban was lifted, Saudi rapper Lisa A. posted this jubilant video of herself driving. While this victory is to be celebrated, there is still much work to be done before the women of Saudi Arabia can achieve true equality. Some have even alleged that the change in Saudi driving laws is merely a distraction from their other restrictive policies. A similar struggle for freedom reached a new level in Iran when 31-year-old Vida Movahed climbed on top of a utility box in downtown Tehran and removed her hijab, waving it around on a stick for all to see. Movahed was quickly arrested and then released as videos of her protests spread internationally. Since then, the many women who have staged similar protests have been dubbed the Girls of Revolution Street, and the movement is growing. While progress has been slow, access to social media has made it possible for the whole world to know about the human rights violations taking place in Iran, forcing their government to contend with the collective outrage of many people and nations across the world. Fortunately, thanks to the tools available to us in the digital age, you too can get involved in furthering the fight for human rights in the Middle East. Click below to find out more about how you can get involved in Human Liberty 2.0. So um, there are a number of governments in our world today making a bet, and the bet is that they can monopolize the power of digital media and use it exclusively as a tool to empower the state against the individual, while simultaneously disarming individuals of any access or meaningful access to these tools for purposes of independent expression or for organizing any kind of resistance. Um, I will tell you, my strong sense <clears throat> is that the internet is actually, um, the, the internet cannot be completely controlled and manipulated by the state, and that's a very good thing. Because if it could, if, if, if this was possible, of course the Chinese system is the world's greatest uh, trial and in, 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 in effort to achieve this result, if this is possible, we're going to live in a long, dark night where the full power of all these digital tools is deployed against individuals on a massive scale by governments like China, which are unapologetic about taking away people's freedom. Um, Saudi Arabia and the Saudi driving ban is a great example of a highly repressive regime actually losing a battle because of the internet. <clears throat> and there are others in my book. Um, I will tell you that the situation in countries like Saudi Arabia, Iran, China, North Korea is dark and it's not gonna get better anytime soon in any sense that we would call free. But um, the cracks in these systems that the internet is making are significant. Um, I just published an op-ed recently about um, a country that is famous for not having the internet, North Korea. So the article is called Cyber Activism in a Land Without the Internet. And uh, this is from a chapter in my book. I discovered that even in North Korea, <clears throat> um, activists have found a way to use USB drives and SD cards 
which they call nose cards, because you can hide them in your nose if the police search you. And um, uh, it's very common for people in North Korea to spread information from the outside world by handing these drives to each other and these SD cards. And it's happening on a scale that even the North Korean regime can't stop. That's a very good thing, right? Um, so um, one of the uh, heroes of this struggle that we highlight in my book is a North Korean defector who has pioneered a program called Flash Drives for Freedom where they get students to give their uh, USB drives to this uh, charity that then loads them with information and gets them into North Korea. Um, I have two chapters on the Chinese firewall. <clears throat> um, they were probably the two most difficult chapters for me to write because I'm not an expert on China. And I found that a lot of the source material was in Chinese and I had to have it translated. And then I realized there's all sorts of things going on that are being reported in Chinese and not in English. Um, the um, situation in China is, is very complex, but I will tell you that there have been and continue to be a series of scandals, usually involving product safety issues. This is not, you know, sort of traditional Western free speech. You know, it's the government is releasing vaccines that kill and harm children unnecessarily. The government is allowing um, tainted food to be sold and people's kids are dying, baby food that's tainted. And Asian parents care about their kids. And uh, when this happens, there's no one to complain to, no one to sue. You know, the government isn't going to do anything. Um, and when you try to talk about it, they silence you. And so people, just ordinary people, are going onto the internet in China and telling the stories of what happened to their kids. And, you know, the story will be censored, but in the, in the short period of time that it's online, it'll get millions of hits, and people will take screen captures of it and share it with their friends, because everybody knows the system is corrupt. It, it's a crony capital system. It can't, it, it doesn't really serve the people. It serves the the small handful of party members who own all the means of production, <laughs> to use a Marxist term. And, um, and, and that's breaking through year after year. And the, the, my sense is that the rage among Chinese people at the inability of their government to, to put the safety of their children first is, is very deep. And the scandals don't stop because the system can't fix itself because it's a monopoly, right? Okay. Um, I found that very encouraging. A couple more international examples. Um, one that uh, I find very moving. Anybody ever heard of Oscar Morales? He's Colombian. You read the book. <laughs> That's not fair. Did you hear about him independently from the book? Uh, yeah. You did? Okay, all right. Well, then it's fair. Oscar Morales is a self-described Colombian geek. He got tired of the uh, terrible excesses of a Marxist guerrilla group called FARC, F-A-R-C. They were kidnapping people. Um, he just went on Facebook and started a group uh, expressing his outrage that in Colombia they had this barbaric group that was doing things that are really um, horrible even by the standards of guerrilla organizations. And before you know it, he had millions of people joining this Facebook group, and it became such an embarrassment to the Colombian government that they hadn't shut this group down, that they finally committed the resources to put FARC out of business. And that's because this guy just took the tools of the digital age and used them. Um, he's a very self-effacing guy. Um, finally, one last international story 
that I find um, very, very uh, instructive because it illustrates the age that we're living in in a wonderful way. There's a charity called Ushahidi. Ushahidi means witness in Swahili. It was founded by a guy who went to my alma mater of Brandeis named Patrick Meyer. Patrick Meyer is a crowd mapping fanatic. You guys all know what crowd mapping is, yeah? Um, you get people to participate in helping you to create an online map, okay? So it becomes a real-time, uh, uh, constantly updated map. Um, there was an earthquake in Haiti. The uh, U.S. Marines and the U.N. send uh, forces into Haiti to rescue survivors trapped in the rubble. They're using paper maps. Uh, Patrick Meyer figures, maybe I can do something to help. I'll get all my friends around the world who are crowd mapping maniacs like me. We'll all work together. We'll create an Ushahidi disaster relief map. Well, within 48 hours, the Marines and the UN had thrown away their paper maps, and they were using this volunteer-generated Ushahidi map because they were finding more people. Next step in this story, the Haitian cell phone company creates a free text messaging service where you can report people trapped in the rubble but the messages are coming in in Haitian Creole, which it really isn't even proper French, and the Marines and the UN, they don't have a lot of Haitian Creole speakers. So this same guy, Patrick Meyer, goes on the internet to all the Haitian Creole user groups and recruits enough volunteers that in 24 hours they're doing real-time translation of texts coming out of Haiti and putting points on the map. So people are literally being dug out of the rubble in Haiti and being saved because a network of volunteers who never went to Haiti and probably many of whom never met each other were working on their behalf online using these tools. That's a beautiful illustration of what this power can do. In the, and, and it wasn't a government effort and it wasn't a UN effort. It was a volunteer effort. Yeah, um, little plug for Brandeis there. Um, okay, uh, there are other chapters in the book. They deal with things like um, Organizing blood donations so, uh, using the internet so that donors are matched with uh, recipients. Um, uh, helping women in third world countries borrow small amounts of money so they can start a business when the male-dominated banking system won't give them any capital. Um, uh, using the tools of crowdfunding to raise money for nets to uh, help kids at risk for malaria get bed netting in Africa. Um, there's a lot of great examples, and they're very encouraging. So I encourage you to take a look at the book. Um, let me switch to the U.S. now. Uh, here at home, uh, we have charities that are also doing great things for the fundamental rights of people. Um, I'll talk about several today. Uh, we'll start with Humans of New York. Anybody ever heard of Humans of New York? So you guys know Humans of New York's a photography website, but they've sort of morphed into a charitable organization because they have more Facebook followers than there are residents of New York City. And they're using that muscle now to help uh, victims of trafficking and also do disaster relief. So we're going to watch a short video about Humans of New York and what they do. All I did all day long for about six months was photograph. That's all I did. I had thousands of photos, but I've been doing it for months and nobody was paying attention. We started getting one new fan a day, two new fans a day. And I said, forget everything else. This is, this is what's working for me. You should dance here, Brian. So that's Brandon Stanton. Brandon Stanton is the founder of Humans of New York. 
he, he was an investment manager in Chicago. And see if you can back it up and restart it. And um, he loved photography. And uh, he quit his uh, lucrative job, moved to New York City to pursue his dream as a photographer. Everyone in his family told him he was mad. And um, he just had the uh, drive to actually try it and do it. The one new thing today, two new fans today. And I said, forget everything else. This is, this is what's working for me. Oh, I lost right I'll tell you the story. So um, when Hurricane Sandy hit New York, um, Humans of New York was at the forefront of organizing disaster relief. They discovered that they actually had this huge online community of people who were really motivated to do good, and um, they made a big impact during Hurricane Sandy. And then um, they started working with charities that uh, deal with labor trafficking in countries like, is it India or Bangladesh? Uh, Pakistan. Pakistan. So there's a lot of slave labor in Pakistan, especially um, very labor-intensive industries like making bricks. And a lot of these slaves are kids. It's like indentured servitude. You're basically sold by your family and you become the property of the, of the company that makes the bricks. And so they've been working to raise funds to help charities that are seeking to free victims of uh, that form of trafficking. Um, here in the US, we have a number of charities that are working on behalf of trafficking victims using the internet. A couple of stories. Uh, there's one out of Atlanta called For Sarah. It's a woman who dedicated it to her daughter, Sarah. She herself was trafficked. She got out. She now tries to help women who are being trafficked. Uh, one of the simple things they do is they just um, go to every uh, internet posting they can find for what looks like a possible trafficking victim, and they just send a message saying, hey, if you need help, we're here to help you. And they give them ways that they can communicate surreptitiously without getting caught. Um, and that actually works over time. Um, so uh, they've saved a lot of women from that lifestyle, in, starting in the Atlanta area. Um, another very uh, innovative and very interesting uh, charity that I think is a, a vision of things to come is called Traffic Cam. Anybody heard of Traffic Cam? Traffic Cam was started by three female entrepreneurs who realized that they could create a database of images of hotel rooms around the country and then reference that against photos of women who'd been trafficked to try to find out where these women were, because often they're photographed in a hotel room somewhere. So when you travel, if you get the Traffic Cam app, you can take pictures of every hotel room you're in. It's put into a database, and the technology is so powerful now, the imaging and analysis technology, that uh, they can look at a new photo of a, of a potential trafficking victim and based on the furniture or the arrangement of the room or the drapes, they can tell what hotel chain it is. Maybe they can tell what actual hotel it is. Um, so they're using that technology to free women and others. Um, and then there's one story I want to share with you just because it illustrates how powerful this can be because it involves a, um, a very young child. Uh, has anybody heard the story of Rachel Beckwith and Charity Water? Anybody familiar with this? So Charity Water is a charity that uh, digs, among other things, digs wells for clean water in Africa. And they're very savvy about using digital media to market and promote their efforts, which is good. Um, one of the things they do, if you give them a certain amount of money, they will dig a well in your name and put it on Google Maps. And then you can show all your friends, here's my well, you should have a well, how come you don't have a well? 
and uh, very smart. Um, so there's a young girl in Seattle named Rachel Beckwith. Rachel Beckwith um, is 12 years old. Rachel Beckwith is a very unusual girl, very unselfish for a 12-year-old. She tells her parents, hey, when I have my birthday, I don't want any gifts. I want a well. So she says to her parents, uh, put the money in my well fund and tell all my friends, don't buy me presents, put the money in my well fund. Rachel Beckwith is killed in a car crash a few weeks before her 12th birthday. And um, her parents go on radio in Seattle and they say, um, listen, we want to honor our daughter's dying wish. Uh, you know, would your listeners consider giving to her well fund? Well, in no time flat, they've raised enough money for 10 wells. So they dig 10 wells in her name. Then a national news media outlet hears about it, covers the story, and same thing, in no time flat, they've got enough money for 100 wells. So there's 100 wells named after this girl in Africa. A couple of years later, the founder, Scott Harrison, who I know, <clears throat> takes the girl's mother, Rachel's mother, on a tour of all the wells dug in her daughter's name in this part of Africa. And people are lining the streets holding photos of her daughter as they go by because they all know the story of this girl you know, who's dying wish, right? And, and um, uh, think about it. If, you know, if a 12-year-old girl can do this, why aren't we doing something like this, right? I mean, what a rebuke in a sense. I'm not trying to be, but, I, I, you know, to us that this is, sorts of things are possible now, and in a way we have less excuse than ever before to sit on the sidelines. Um, some people are passionate about some issues, some people are called to other issues. We, we all can't fix all the world's problems, but I bet you there's one that you could work on. And this book is designed to challenge you to think like that and to challenge young people to think that way because human rights is everybody's business. If we treat it as the business of some government agency or, or and, you know, some bureaucratic entity, we're gonna see our rights trampled. Um, this is very fundamental to the whole idea of freedom. Freedom is self-government. And self-government includes being vigilant with respect to your own fundamental rights. So thank you for coming. Um, I'm going to take your questions if we have time. We have time. Okay. Questions about the theme or the chapters? Anything? Question. Uh, you mentioned something about this early on, but uh, how can we try and force the media to, um, you know, cover these, you know, positive stories so that we get greater dissemination? That's a very good question. Uh, I don't think you can force the media to do anything. I think the only thing that moves the media is the is market dynamics and the bottom line. And so I hope that by um, telling these stories ourselves, celebrating them ourselves, um, we can inspire and motivate the media to do more of the same. I'm very frustrated often in my own career with uh, a media landscape that I liken to a series of stovepiped silos. And there's a certain narrative or message that, that is promoted within each silo. And if you fit, they love you. <laughs> but if you don't fit, they don't have time for you. And many of the great issues of our day are outside those silos, like these stories. And um, so we sort of have to create our own media, I guess you'd say. And I mean, Brandon Stanton did that. It sounds outlandish, but uh, that's exactly what Brandon Stanton did. Brandon Stanton's Humans of New York is really a celebration of the wonderful complexity and beauty of individuals who are not celebrities, who you never hear about, 
right? And so let's look to his example as one that we could follow potentially. Whether we work with video or images or blogs, doesn't matter. Right, good question. Dr. Daniels, there seems to, thank you so much for your talk, there seems to be a certain level of complacency for human rights now. I think about Eleanor Roosevelt and the UN Declaration of Human Rights came out of witnessing the horrors of World War II. And it seems like the younger generation these days, um, you know, unless you're a specialist in this field, is slightly removed from that historical memory. So in some sense, there's more apathy, more sort of complacency to this, but at the same time with you know, data governance, internet governance, and new sort of um, new opportunities for totalitarianism in the digital age, it seems like human rights uh, is more important than ever. So how would you sort of, what would be your strategy to help educate the public so they have a platform to I mean, besides going to law school and studying like constitutional law and reading the Bill of Rights or something, but how about in the global sphere? How do you how do you help you know promote that sort of um, I guess technological literacy, human rights, technological literacy, self advocacy, courage, you know, to, to engage civically. So this is a very good question and a very good observation about. Um, this pattern where one generation will be very concerned about human rights because they witnessed the horrors of the Holocaust and then we move into a sort of generational cycle where people are comfortable and so these things are not really real to them. I will tell you that when I teach, I always love teaching international students and having international students in the class because many of them come from countries where human rights struggles are a live issue for them and their friends. They may even have friends who are in prison who, because of something they wrote or said. Um, and it really helps the students from America and Western countries where we take these rights for granted to sit next to somebody who actually knows from experience what it's like to lose your human rights. I will tell you that uh, in my experience, the most motivated advocates for human rights are those who have suffered themselves or seen someone close to them suffer. Um, to answer the second part of your question about how do we raise literacy in this area, my answer um, is stories. That's why we wrote this book. I think to hone it and sharpen it a little more, um, I have a lot of hope that um, digital video properly used can fill that void to some extent. Um, uh, if you um, use digital video well as a medium, you can introduce people vicariously to uh, the realities of human rights violations around the world in a way that can actually motivate them. I've seen this many times in my class. I've actually had students complain to me. I mean, they've said to me, you know, when I came into your class, all I worried about was my career and, you know, having fun with my friends. And now, after we've studied uh, all of these various human rights topics, I have trouble going to sleep at night. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but that's actually a good problem because it's good to have your eyes open because you're part of this thing we call humanity. And if there are people in bondage, in chains, who are suffering, you know, it's good to care about them. And one day it may be you or someone you love. So you might as well open up your eyes. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, apathy is what, um, evil thrives on, right? The old Edmund Burke quote, yeah. Um, 
There's a terrible cycle to history. If we forget about the importance of human rights, history will remind us. And we may be in one of those cycles now with these rising uh, violent movements, authoritarian movements that are completely committed to the obliteration of human rights of groups that they don't like. Yeah? Um, and you're seeing them at both ends of the political spectrum. So we have an educational task that's very important and urgent. That's why we do this work. But that's a, that's a great question. Thanks. More? These are great questions. I really like I like you guys. These are really good questions. Yes, I do. China. Did you know that there are people right now uh, communicating in blockchain to each other in order to bypass the Chinese censors? They're actually encoding messages in blockchain and talking to each other, and the Chinese censors can't even figure out what they're saying. So yeah, I mean, you have to be sort of an uber geek to do that, but it's happening. I hope one day more of us can do it. I'm all in favor of people having encryption tools I think you have a fundamental right to privacy, and um, people should have the right to private communications. Um, it's, it's fundamental to being human. More questions, comments? Do you think that like, that type of encryption tools are the best way to counteract governments that could or do uh, just have access to everybody's personal information? And because you know, everything's kind of accessible, really. Both. Both. Yeah. The uh, I'm I'm good friends with the UN Special Rapporteur for Privacy, Professor Joe Kanatachi, and he's fighting the good fight right now against um, a rising tide of um, surveillance. Um, but at the end of the day, he would be the first to say to you, um, your privacy is really in your hands. Um, yet, I mean, we should advocate. He, he, he was the, the primary author of the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation that was passed in Europe. So he's working on the legislation. You know what the problem is? Technology is always in front of law. So, so when we pass laws, we're actually um, uh, legislating with reference to technology that's about 10 years old. So um, this is a perennial problem. This means that self-protection and self-education are really your only hope because there's always going to be a gap between law and technology. Um, <laughs> I try to um, shock my students when I teach with some of the scenarios of what is being done and will be done with their personal data. And I'm amazed at how they haven't really thought about where this is going to lead. Um, I mean, this stuff, anybody seen Black Mirror? I love Black Mirror. Black Mirror fans? Okay. It's a British series. Check it out if you haven't seen it. It's spooky because Black Mirror has this interesting formula. You know, most dy uh, dystopian fantasy films, they're set in kind of some outlandish world that seems very removed from where we are, right? Very sort of futuristic. Black Mirror is just one step from where we are. So when you watch a Black Mirror episode about some horrible abuse, you go, wait a second, that could happen tomorrow here <laughs> if we just go one more step down the path that we're on right now. Uh, that's a good example, by the way. Black Mirror is a great example of digital video being used to shock people, in a sense, with the scenarios of the future that I think some of us are going to face.
We have reviews of Black Mirror. We love Black Mirror. Any other questions? All right, thank you everybody for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks. Disaster and injustice seems to plague our world. 780 million people without access to clean water. Terrorists use social media to recruit extremists. And human traffickers coerce the young and naive into a lifestyle of pain and slavery. But in this same world, there are those who fight for humanity. Everyday heroes are harnessing the power of digital and social media to transform the world for good. Human Liberty 2.0 is a unique collection of true life stories, highlighting these world-changing heroes of the digital age, who are bringing clean drinking water to Africa and saving lives in disaster zones, uniting people against terrorist movements, and rescuing victims of human trafficking proving that the world is not as dark a place as you may think and showing how you have the power to make a difference.